Now let me invite you to open your Bibles again to the book of Acts. And today we walk in territory that is hotly debated uh, among New Testament scholars and commentators. Uh, you know, commentators are just regular potatoes, not special. And sometimes it's helpful to remember that, but I am someone who reads a great deal, probably 250 pages just for this sermon. And uh, I'm not bragging when I say that, it's just fact, because I have a great hunger and longing to be faithful to preach the truth. But you can hardly find two guys who see this passage in the same way. Um, people even from the same denomination, subscribing to the same doctrinal commitments, have broad disagreement on what happened in these following verses. So I hope it piques your interest a little bit as we take a look. And, and Luke is deliberately doing something. He is uh, reporting on Paul's entrance to Jerusalem in a very similar way to what he did in his gospel when Christ entered Jerusalem on uh, Palm Sunday riding the colt or the donkey. Um, and then what happened to Christ that week, the week of the Passion, and what is going to happen to Paul here in the book of Acts. So here now the word of the Lord as we will look in chapter 21 with uh, verses 17 through 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance to the law, or of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality, here in particular incest or consanguinity. I'm adding that so you'll know it's not just pornea, uh, that kind of, we all knew that they were banned from that, but he's speaking in reference here to marriage within degrees of kinship. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, 
and went into the temple giving uh, notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, I pray today that as the word is preached, it would be preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. It would be heard by people who are hungry and teachable and responsive and uh, long uh, for the good bread of the word of the Lord. And we pray that as you speak to us, your spirit would begin that work of heart surgery within us to soften our hearts and prepare uh, the soil of our hearts to receive the engrafted word of God, which is able to save us and change us and transform us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke here sort of recalibrates his camera into slow motion. He often does this in his writings, um, and he does so to record the conflict that Paul is going to encounter in Jerusalem when he sought to demonstrate his loyalty to his Jewish heritage. The next two and a half chapters, that is Acts 21, 17 through chapter 23 and verse 35, record the events of a period of less than two weeks in duration. As the evangelist gave extended treatment to the week leading to Jesus' death, for example, Luke 19 through 23, so here Luke slows his narrative pace down to emphasize the importance of Paul's suffering at the hands of uh, the Jewish leadership, which was foretold repeatedly, remember, as Paul traveled to Jerusalem. Agabus prophesied that he would be tied and bound. Uh, others in other cities told and warned Paul through prophecy not to go to Jerusalem, urged him not to go because bad stuff was going to happen. Well, bad stuff is going to happen, and Paul knew that, but he went anyway, believing it was the will of God. The outcome for Paul, at least at that time, would differ from that which was endured by our Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, the apostle was following in the footsteps of the suffering servant, seeking opportunity to bear witness to the name of Jesus in every assault, conversation, or inquest. And so Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and James here is the half-brother of Jesus. He was recognized as the leader of the church in Jerusalem and also the worldwide Jewish Christian movement. It is interesting considering that today Christianity is considered strictly non-Jewish, that we are told many thousands of Jews, in verse 20, have believed. The church in Jerusalem was what we would call a megachurch. It was huge. And a significant percentage of Jerusalem had become Christian. This was the fourth meeting between James and Paul. This is not the first time they meet. This is the fourth time they meet. And so uh, uh, the leaders of the Jewish and Gentile Christianity, respectively, John Stott says the following, Some people were doubtless asserting that the doctrinal positions of James and Paul were incompatible, as they had done before at the Jerusalem Council, that is in chapter 15. 
They said that Paul taught salvation by grace alone and that James taught salvation by works. Hence, later, Luther's uneasiness, which led him to dub the letter of James an epistle of straw, which he later backed off on, which was good for him. However, we see here that while the perspective and emphasis uh, emphases of James and Paul were different, there is no fundamental incompatibility. First, verse 17, Paul was received warmly. Now, I might, I might add a little subtext here. Paul brought an offering, a rather large offering, from the Gentile churches to the meeting. And uh, this is not even commented on or responded to until chapter 24. But here we know that they received him warmly. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't want to be cynical. But I'm not sure that because of the bags of money sitting in the floor, that sort of brightened up everybody's attitude in Jerusalem quite a bit. There were huge bags of money everywhere because it was solid money, not paper money, or not a uh, transaction upon your phone. <laughs> because they didn't have phones. However, um, James and the elders, and there must have been a, a high number of elders, as many as the conversions were in Jerusalem to take care of that church. There had to be a huge group of elders heard the detailed report of Paul's ministry, and they praised God for it. Uh, with them. There's not a sign of any kind of disapproval, but rather a great rejoicing together. Third, we see that James is not like the Judaizers that Paul challenged in the book of Galatians at all. Uh, rather, he was concerned. Uh, the Judaizers, by the way, believe that all people must obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. And that's who Paul's fighting in the book of Galatians. They were saying in order to become a full Christian, you Gentiles must first become Jewish. And then you're in. You are truly in. You must submit yourselves to the Mosaic law. And so James was not of that party. Uh, but some of his followers were. And that's where the problem was. Um, Rather, he is only concerned that the Christian Jews stay true to the Mosaic law. We see it in verses 21 and 22, where he clearly tells Paul that the only concern is whether the Jews who live among the Gentiles are being encouraged by Paul to uh, turn away from the law of Moses. Now, there's no evidence anywhere that Paul was doing that to Jews. There's not one scintilla of evidence that he ever went to any Jewish person who became a Christian and said, cut this out, stop the circumcision, stop uh, the customs. And I think by Luke's use of the word customs here, he's not talking about the law in its full-orbed aspect. Most people divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial. And while the moral law applies to all, whether it be Jew or Gentile, the civil law had pretty much run its course because of the nature of the kingdom of God no longer being a theocratic nation. 
but rather the ceremonial law here was what was at issue and some of the Jews still went to the temple they had not completely separated from the temple the temple had not yet been destroyed also another thing to remember as you read this text the book of Hebrews had not been written and so the book of Hebrews decided decisively uh, challenges all of the issues that Paul and James are here dealing with and so what we have here is nuance there's a lot of nuance here that uh, requires a great deal of care not to jump to conclusions one of the things I have noticed about people who engage in whispering campaigns which happens here and conspiracy theories is there tends to be a reactionary response there's not careful thinking there's not deep research there is rather instinctive reaction and response Paul is very nuanced in his approach which I will show you in a minute as we continue the message but please understand that there was controversy here and the language of uh, James in this verse shows that he did not believe Paul was doing this and so now if James is only concerned that the Jewish Christians still observe the law of Moses he must consider such observance a cultural expression not a requirement for salvation the word jo uh, James uses for mosaic teaching in context here is very telling it is customs James and the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 had already agreed conclusively that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and therefore no one needed to be circumcised in order to be saved so there's a distinction here between circumcision as placing yourself under the law trying to attain or accomplish salvation but rather a custom if you grew up in Judaism it was normative it was normal it's what you did uh, when, when a child a male child was born so in summary James and Paul both agreed that no one was saved by circumcision and obeying the law on the other hand they believed the moral law was something every Christian now obeyed out of gratitude for God's grace the point of contention was only this should Jewish Christians continue to observe the Jewish cultural customs of their heritage Paul was reputed to have told the Jews to not to do so now who are these Jews who are reacting to Paul more than likely they were members of the party of the Pharisees who had been converted to Christianity and so the pharisaical approach to Christianity probably needed some transformation in other words it's easy when you leave a religious past and come into a new relationship with God for some of that religious past to carry itself over and so we know that some of these Pharisees were suspicious of the Apostle Paul they were quite suspicious of him and they knew who he was Saul of Tarsus he was famous he was an up-and-coming Pharisee he was a member of the Sanhedrin council so they knew his history they know who he was they knew what had happened but rumors 
or hearsay had come in from Asia Minor and other places Paul had been like Greece and Achaia and Corinth and come back to Jerusalem stating that Paul was issuing edicts against Jews practicing circumcision. And so it's interesting to see how this works itself out because that is exactly and precisely what was happening. Uh, the report that thousands of Jews had believed shows that despite the frustration that Paul often met with when witnessing to the dispersion and going to synagogue after synagogue, the gospel was bearing fruit, abundant fruit, in Judea. The problem posed by this growth was these believers who remained zealous in keeping the law of Moses had received misinformation about the gospel reported that Paul was urging Jews who trusted Jesus to abandon the Mosaic distinctives that had set Israel apart from the nations, particularly here, circumcision of their children and customs such as kosher dietary restrictions. Paul's epistles show that while he insisted that circumcision was never to be imposed on the Gentiles, he never abandoned that Jewish believers abandoned it. In short, Paul is saying you don't have to become a Jew to become a real Christian, and he's saying to the Jews you don't have to become a Gentile to become a real Christian. Well, what do you have to become? We'll answer that in a minute. But that's the nub of the argument. And Paul argues very decisively here, I think, in many ways, uh, what he had argued in the book of Galatians and other places about the concept of circumcision. So let's take a look at that right now together. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And I want you to see a statement from Paul that I think is fascinating and quite interesting in the given context. This was written probably before this meeting or right around maybe just barely before this meeting. But look at chapter 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? That is the law. That is circumcision with a capital C. Paul is saying to these Gentile believers, you don't have to become a practicing Jew to be a Christian. And do not submit to that. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify that every man who accepts circumcision, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from gra grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eager eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What does it mean that the gospel makes circumcision and uncircumcision both equally valueless? The word translated of value in verse 6, when used of persons means to have power, but when used of things means to be serviceable or to make a profit. 
What profit is it to you of either circumcision or uncircumcision? There is no profit. Circumcision, in a sense, represents the whole round of religious disciplines and duties, while uncircumcision represents paganism, disobedience, and immoral practices. Therefore, Paul's statement here is breathtaking. He is saying neither moral exertion nor moral failure counts. In what way, then, is that true? Well, there are two ways implied here. First, neither religion, that is circumcision, nor irreligion, uncircumcision, counts toward establishing a relationship with God at all. In verse 5, Paul has just said that our future acceptance with God is already certain through the work of Christ. In this context, when he says neither religion nor irreligion counts, he means they don't count toward our rightness and standing with God. Paul is saying my good performance does not make me right with God, nor does my bad performance really make me any more lost and hopeless. All stand equally lost and all equally able to be saved. A Christian, when he or she has just experienced a success, should say, but this success does not increase God's love for me at all. In fact, it's only because of his love for me that this happened, not the other way around. And so... Their present and future acceptance with God uh, is not based upon anything they do, but what God has done. Assurance of salvation is not possible if we think we must earn or even maintain our salvation through our efforts. And so, it's, it's very interesting when you look at this closely, that Paul is saying something very important. He's saying that he's confident that the Galatians are not going to turn their back on the gospel. Uh, even when we experience success or even if we experience failure, we should say, but if I had not failed in this way, this would not make me any more loved and accepted by God than I am at this moment. What I do is irrelevant here. In fact, it's only because of his love for me, not his lack of love, that he has allowed this to happen to me. What a radical principle. This should lead us to tremendous peace and balance in the Christian life. It should eliminate huge roller coaster ups and downs. For we are all in circumcision, spiritual success, or uncircumcision, spiritual failure, every day, all the time. But Paul says both conditions don't count. So what is he saying? Surely Paul means here what Luther referred to in his preface to Galatians. Human beings by nature, when they get near either danger or death itself, will of necessity view their own worthiness. We defend ourselves before all threats by recounting our good deeds and moral efforts. But when the remembrance of sins and flaws inevitably come to mind, this tears us apart, and we think, how many errors and sins and wrongs have I done? But the real evil is that we trust our own power to be righteous and will not lift up our eyes to see that Christ has done for us or to see what Christ has done for us. Second, neither religion, circumcision, or irreligion, uncircumcision, 
count toward inner character change and a heart of real love. Verse 6b says that faith literally energizes love. Faith energizes love. Neither religious moralism nor licentious irreligion can do this because both at the very heart and nature of them essentially are selfish and insecure. Selfishness and insecurity has never produced love or self-giving. The faith, Paul says, that produces love is that which is described in verse 5. It is the faith that reflects upon the certainty of our righteousness and welcome with the Father. If we do that, Paul tells us two things will happen. Negatively, the ups and downs, living on the basis of our performances, whether they be good or bad, will neither puff us up nor throw us down. Because our standing in Christ is not affected by either. We have, this is the gravitational pull and point we need to start every single day with. Every single day with. That we have security and assurance that we are in a right relationship with God. Positively, this eager awaiting faith will now naturally produce a great deal of love, faith expressing itself in love. If we are reminding ourselves and living in the light of this hope, we will have a heart sloshing over with love. Put another way, if we find our love running dry or cold, we are not, by faith, looking at our hope. Gospel faith produces a certainty that we are holy and beautiful. The more conscious we are of that certainty, the less we will be subject to the ups and downs and the more we will find our hearts melted with love. Now this might have been what the Pharisees who had become Christians were reacting to because it sounds like Paul deconstructs circumcision here and he does. He relativizes circumcision. It is no longer that which makes a person right with God. And so they may have reacted to that. James uh, here speaks of four men who have taken a Nazarite vow. In this rite, a person would refrain from drinking wine or cutting his hair for a period of time, after which the hair was cut and burned along with other sacrifices. Paul did this vow in Corinth because God preserved and protected him as an expression of gratitude. It was similar to what people seek to accomplish through uh, a fast. It is a way of offering our hearts uh, to God in a particular strong way and our will to God in a particularly strong way. The Nazarite vow was part of the Mosaic law. James, hoping to quell the controversy, and it's a very well-intended hope, approaches Paul and tells him, I want you to pay the temple fees that accompany this offering. James asked Paul to join them and pay the temple fees. This would show everyone that he was still practicing the customs of Judaism uh, uh, who observed the Mosaic legislation. The second part of James' plan to be sure that the Gentiles accompanying Paul were to very careful to stick with the plan provided by the council, the Jerusalem council. 
There were the four cultural practices, which are not wrong in themselves for Gentiles to do, but which they were asked to avoid out of sensitivity to Jewish believers. Paul's response was to do exactly what James had asked. And, I mean, there's, there's hardly anybody in Christianity I admire more than James Montgomery Boyce. I mean, I learned so much from him. I listened to him religiously, as it were. But here, Boyce claims that Paul made a huge mistake. Now, is it possible for Paul to make a huge mistake? Sure. Paul's just a man. I mean, his writings are ex-cathedra, that is authoritative and infallible, because they are the God-breathed Word of God. But his practice as a Christian and his practice as a missionary are certainly up for evaluation. But here, James Boyce takes a very negative and dim view of what Paul did. He said it was a big mistake because look at what happens afterwards. On the other hand, someone like Derek Thomas, who I took a trip with not long ago, really love the guy, really respect the guy. I think he's one of the best theologians and thinkers in the Reformed tradition alive today. And he himself also takes a strong negative view of this passage. I don't, and here's why. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I thought we were in the book of Acts. Why are you looking at 1 Corinthians? Because we just talked about Corinth a few weeks ago. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I want you to see what the apostle says. It is remarkable, especially in this context. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19, for though I am free, listen carefully, I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became what? As a Jew. In order to what? Win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though, not myself being under the law, I, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. And so Paul, in these verses, says something that I think is profound and applies to this particular situation. Paul clarifies what it means to make himself a slave or servant of all people. His explanation has to do with the way he ministers in different contexts to different kinds of people. He is not caving in here. He is not caving in to the Jews. He is not making a stupid decision, but rather he's adapting a mission strategy. And so his explanation has to do with the way he ministers in different contexts to different kinds of people. He takes as examples the Jews, those under the law, those outside the law, the weak, and that these are just a few examples of his 
adaptive mission strategy. The first three examples Paul uses are drawn from the most basic differences among those to whom he ministers, Jews by birth or choice, and Gentiles. The fourth example, the weak, is chosen to its direct relevance to Paul's former discussion of the food offered to idols in chapter 8 and the contrast it draws between his own approach to such people and that of some of the Corinthians. Now, what is Paul saying here? He is saying that he is willing on non-essential core gospel issues to adapt to customs that were not his own. And he clarifies in this passage, no, I am not caving in. I am not observing the law here in order to diminish the gospel, but rather I have the freedom to place myself under these restrictions because of that matter. So, Paul's response in this passage was to do exactly what James asked. Now, we know that Paul himself was willing to abandon Jewish custom even for himself when it meant reaching out more effectively to Gentiles or then to adopt it, Jewish customs, fully as he did here, when it meant helping Jews and Gentiles to live and work together in solidarity, as when he had the half-Gentile Timothy circumcised in Acts 16. What does this show us? To Paul, cultural practices are matters from which he had become completely liberated. So liberated that he was not offended or disdainful of them, nor enslaved to them. Sometimes people think they have been liberated uh, from cultural practices, but their bitterness and contempt for them means that they could not engage in them, even if it would help a relationship. And so, to judge Paul here as caving in, I think, is mistaken. I don't think it's taking the whole Pauline corpus of writings into consideration that it is a reactionary stance to a reactionary movement. It's not nuanced or careful thinking. And so what Paul has done now, next week you're going to see the effects of what happened, and they are not good. They are not good, but James was trying to help the brother out. He was trying to say, if you'll do this, maybe it will shut down some of the intensity of the opposition that you are currently facing. I mean, Paul, how, mu how it must have crushed his heart to see people who had converted from Judaism to Christianity coming after him like this. Just looking at him through the lenses of misinformation, never giving the benefit of the doubt, never um, taking time to try to carefully think through what was going on, jumping to the immediate suspicion, and uh, really just getting all worked up without thinking about stuff. It's like putting the mind uh, in park and letting the imagination run wild. Um, and that's exactly what had happened here. They lied. And they didn't trust him because they lied. That is those who opposed Paul. And it's a horrible example of what happened in the church. Seeing him in the worst possible light. Painting him with broad strokes as someone who is uh, anti-Semite. 
I don't know how he could be an anti-Semite. He's a Semite. But he was a true Jew. He was a converted Jew. But this is the beginning of the hostilities that Paul will face in the next several verses while he's only trying... You know, there's nothing worse than trying to do something good and, and, and getting railroaded by it, uh, by people who don't listen, who don't carefully think, who just respond out of bitterness or prejudice or bias without carefully attempting some level of objectivity when they look at anything. And that's what happened in the church here. People were reactionary. I had a, a person who uh, was in under uh, the, our ministry in Louisiana, and he had very strong opinions about everything. <laughs> I mean, he was so opinionated that he came to me one day and said, Pastor, uh, would you do me a favor? And I said, what's that? During the Sunday school hour, would you teach me and my family, because we don't want to be with the other people. I said, well, pretty soon nobody's going to want to be with you, brother. But I didn't. I held my tongue. But I remember preaching on this circumcision passage, laying it out, and this guy had come from a Catholic heritage, and he was trying to prove to his Catholic family, because of the way he lived his life, that his Christianity was, uh, his Reformed Christianity was better than their Catholicism, which is a total wrong way to go. He was trying to win them over by persuading them he was holier than them. That ain't going to work in any universe. It's nauseating and annoying. But that's what he wanted to do. So I preached on these very verses that I mentioned in the sermon today. And he comes up after the service. And I don't even get to get to the back door. He's in front of me and he's shaking. You know, and you can see it in his eyes. He was looking for a fight. And he was just literally trembling. And he looked at me and he says, Pastor, those verses cannot mean what you just said. They cannot mean that. He said, you are wrong. I said, okay, well, point out where I'm wrong. And then he just really got furious. And he started saying, well, I can read the Bible. I understand English. I know what it says. I said, well, tell me what it says. And he said, well, he said, I'll have to go home and think about it a minute, but I will get back to you. I said, well, I want to tell you something. I have lived with this passage for an entire week. Probably read 400 pages of material on this passage. I researched this passage. I looked at this passage in the original language. I consulted people who know more than I do to try to help me understand this passage. When you go home this week, you do the same thing and I'll be ready to talk to you about it. Now, I, I wasn't trying to win an argument. I was trying to make it a point. Don't come up because of something you don't like. And he cast me in the worst possible light. From then on, I was a heretic for preaching the Bible. So those things are going to happen. And they happen to Paul. Because we're not all sanctified yet. But please, give the benefit of the doubt. You know, one of the things Paul describes love as being is believing all things. What does he mean by, you know, love is... Um, Agape love, which he describes in 1 Corinthians 
13, he says, love believes all that. What does that mean? It takes the best possible view of someone else in a contentious situation rather than taking the worst possible view, viewing that person in the worst light. The gospel enables us to do much better. The gospel enables us to even work with people who differ with us. For example, even though I disagree with Boyce and I disagree a little bit with Derek Thomas, I still love both of them. And I still consider him my friend. Why can't we agree to disagree in an agreeable way? I don't understand that. Because none of us possesses the knowledge of God. We're all in process learning. And so dogmatism is so inappropriate often in these things. And that's what's going to happen to Paul. He is literally going to meet opposition like he has never seen before from these people who believe he has threatened their essence and reason for being. And so the gospel liberates us to have the freedom to be more flexible and not inflexible to, to, with, with our liberty. We can restrict our liberty sometimes uh, out of love for another brother or sister who can't participate, the weaker brother or the weaker sister whose conscience condemns them in a particular action. Let's say that I decided on a Sunday uh, to go to lunch with someone who held a view of the Sabbath day uh, being Sunday that they couldn't eat out at a restaurant. Well, what should I do? Because I say, well, I know you don't eat out in a restaurant. I don't like you for that. If you're going to eat with me, you've got to go to the restaurant. No. I might say, okay, we'll prepare the meal at home and have you come to our home. And we'll do it on Saturday night. We'll make a, a pot of chili or something and reheat it. Why? Well, that would be the loving thing to do. That would be the responsive thing to do. Restrict my liberty, if I have it, to go eat somewhere on Sunday in order to respect and love that brother or sister who can't. That's what Paul is driving at in this passage. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. I mean, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. And in all things love. In all things love. Well, I think that's all that I wanted us to see and hear from this chapter. But there's plenty, plenty here for us all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this, your word. And that your word speaks into our hearts and every one of us falls short every one of us are sinners in need of forgiveness and grace every one of us need to hear your word today and respond to it in all humility and grace and we pray now that as we continue this service and come to the Lord's table you will by your grace Meet with us and minister to us in ways that are beyond what we can fully grasp or comprehend. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.